I mean, that's a pretty good rate <laughs> for a complainant, right? On 100, 100%. 90% last year, 100% in 2020, and 87% in 2019. I mean, these the odds are extremely high that if the case comes down to DI, that you're going to win. Welcome to another edition of the Exclusive Rights IP Podcast from Vince. Today, we're going to discuss some recent developments at the International Trade Commission related to the concept of domestic industry, which relates to whether patent owners have access to the ITC as a forum. I'm joined today by my partner, Jonathan Engler, from our TC office. Jonathan is an expert in ITC practice, having represented clients on both sides of the V for many years, and having spent seven years in the office of the general counsel at the ITC. Thanks for talking to me, Jonathan. How are you doing? Oh, it's great to be here today. Thank you. So I, we're going to get into some recent developments, like I said, but first off, what is domestic industry? Why does the ITC require a domestic industry and, and why is this important? Uh, so a key question. I, you know, a lot of people are confused about the domestic industry requirement. It's something like a standing requirement, but in, it really is a substantive legal issue at the ITC. And the question is whether a complainant, which is what plaintiffs are called at the ITC, has significant enough U.S. economic activity to uh, a trade remedy. And uh, you don't have to make things here. Uh, a lot of ITC complainants meet the domestic industry requirement with research and development expenses, uh, warranty and technical support, and various other kinds of value-added activities. But the commission is, at the end of the day, the International Trade Commission, and they want to make sure that there is a uh, Enough, sort of the nature of the economic activity in the U.S. that's being protected is what uh, Congress intended. I see sort of the the ITC created, if I'm not mistaken, in the era, the early 1900s, 1930s. And my memory of the history was that it was created originally to be sort of a protectionist agency for domestic manufacturing. And as time has gone by, American economics have changed. American industry has changed. And we've moved a lot more to be a, a more of a knowledge economy where, where we're not making as much stuff as we used to, physical things, but we make a lot of IP output. And this entity is supposed to be able to capture that, that change in sort of American economic production. And is mm -hmm. that still sort of like in your mind when you're swooping in what the domestic industry is? We're not just talking about actual making a widget in Western Pennsylvania or you know, some other factory somewhere else in, in Americana. Oh, absolutely. But even actually, just to go back to what you raised a moment ago, which is, you know, the history, that actually helps us a little bit to frame in a bigger way what the ITC is all about. Uh, you know, initially, the way that the ITC statute was written is almost identical to that of the Federal Trade Commission. And the idea behind the ITC actually was that under the original version of the Tariff Act, was that unfair acts of all kinds that you could find remedy for in the United States by going to the FTC, you know, unfair business practices, that you should have the same kinds of remedies available to you if the uh, you know, unfair acts involved international trade and incoming products. So from the outset, the focus really on the statute was on the act, the unfair acts, and only over time did this notion of having a protectable domestic industry kind of come into play. So in a way, worrying about unfair access importation is almost uh, back to the future in some ways. So the you know over the years, the statute evolved and the 
starting really the, the modern version of the statute uh, dates back to 1988. And at that point, just to your point, uh, you know, Congress recognized that we wanted to protect innovation in the United States, even if it didn't mean that the innovative product was necessarily made here. And uh, the uh, commission, sorry, the Congress uh, rewrote Section 337 to allow a complainant to establish the domestic industry based on research and development and licensing activities, not only on manu- you know, more traditional manufacturing. And in fact, um, it used to be in the old days to get a remedy to the ITC, you had to show not only that you had U.S. activities, but you had to prove injury. But starting with the 88 Act for patent and other statutory ITC cases, the injury requirement was removed. So if you look at it in the sort of the broad sweep of time, the uh, legislation, the Section 337 has always been meant to provide, to protect innovation in U.S. Uh, businesses from unfair acts and international trade. And really, Congress has gone out of its way to make it accessible. You know, something that comes up for me frequently is is whether, you know, potential clients and potential clients or people in the patents in, this, in whatever space that they operate are, are always wondering whether they actually have access to the ITC if they make software or if they're just research and development or whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the comments you just made is sort of honing in on what we're talking about today, which is they don't necessarily need to be making something in the U.S. as long as they have sufficient domestic industry otherwise, as defined by the statute, inside the United States. And I think that's a nice segue into hyperice, which I don't have the the number handy, I, I suspect you do though, the Hyperice case that I think refocused the concept that yes, these kinds of companies still have access to the ITC. So if you could just talk about that a little bit, I think I think that might provide a little bit of the context of what we're talking about today. Absolutely. And you know, part of the backdrop here is that you know some there's been some anxiety in you know some quarters that perhaps the ITC is becoming more restrictive on the industry and what they're looking for. But uh, what's really interesting about this new Hyperice case, which is the uh, 1206 Commission opinion, is that it really is consistent with you know, decades of ITC jurisprudence. You've got a U.S.-based company that's sort of a classic garage startup, started as a very small company, and uh, they make or they, they develop these uh, basically electric you know, massagers. And uh, we don't have... The supply chain to make things like that in the U.S. anymore. So these products are made overseas uh, by a contract manufacturer, uh, and the U.S. activities of Hyperice, in addition to inventing the product and developing it, conceiving it, and then marketing it, and now serving it in the United States. You know, but for those activities, there wouldn't be this particular special kind of back. Uh, I don't know the detail, but I believe back massager. And the, the commission found that high price was absolutely worthy of uh, protection under the domestic industry standards in the statute. What's really nice about that case, I think, which is encouraging too, is that you know the ALJ in the underlying investigation had had also found that high price met the domestic industry requirement, but the commission decided to review the ID anyway and really used its opinion to to amplify what the ALJ had already said, which was that these kinds of creative activities are really squarely within the gambit of what Section 337 is supposed to be protecting. And the commission wasn't troubled at all uh, by the fact that uh, these devices are made by a contract manufacturer in Asia. They understood that. And that's consistent with a long line of cases. So I was going to say, what, why do you think they chose that case? By they, I mean the commission. What, why do you think the commission chose that case to to focus in on and, and I guess for lack of a better phrase, but 
make the point that these kind of companies are welcome to bring their cases at the ITC. Well, I'm, I'm speculating here, but, you know, there had been a series of IDs, you know, from the judges. And of course, at the ITC, you always have to distinguish between the ALJs, which make you know, recommendations, and the commission, which decides ultimately what's, what the final determination will be. I think the commission may have perceived some confusion on this point because there were some there have been a series of IDs which dwelt quite a bit on the foreign manufacturing and the lack thereof. And uh, it's possible that the commission just wanted to clear the air on this issue a little bit, uh, particularly on this question of significance, which has become a bit of a hot button question. Like, what does that really mean at the ITC in light of the fact that given a uh, fairly recent Federal Circuit case that significant activity, which is this term in the statute, needs to be shown quantitatively. But I think what the commission was really trying to show here was that you know, there hadn't been a fundamental shift in the law, which is important for an administrative agency, which can't make fundamental shifts without explaining a shift, right? That fundamental uh, requirement under the Administrative Procedures Act, but also I, to, I think, make clear that the commission is not hostile to essentially startup companies like Hyperize. Uh, not to mention, of course, larger entities. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting. You you sent me some numbers about, I, I get a lot of doom and gloom <laughs> from some people who think that, you know, domestic industry is this now really contentious issue. And while that might be true in a particular litigation, you know, in the trenches of litigation, that might be a contested issue. But the numbers sort of aren't really bearing out the fact that it might be hotly contested between the parties, but the ALJs and the commission are saying, no, that's a domestic industry. So some of these numbers, while... The, uh, there might be a lower rate from the ALJs. The commission is very, very still much in favor of finding a domestic industry, um, uh, finding that the complainant has a domestic industry. Now, maybe that's a little bit of self-selection. You know, entities are only going to the ITC when they, when they think they have a slam dunk DI case. But I don't know. I think some of those might be less of a slam dunk than would have been considered a couple of years ago. Because I, I mean, I remember when a time when people just stipulated to the domestic industry and it's so contested these days that it's a real consideration for parties whether or not they're going to go to the ITC because they don't want to lose on domestic industry. But in your mind, is that actually a concern? Obviously, you need to go in with the DI, but is, is it really a concern that there's this close call that needs to be hotly considered before, before approaching? Well, maybe we can answer that question in two two steps. One is let's take a look and examine whether this uh, you know, monster in the closet is real. Uh, if you look at and again, the, the commission decides, and as you said, I think sometimes there's a bit of static uh, when people consider only what happens below. But you know, so far, for example, if you look at adjudicated decisions where the commission actually made a final determination and they had to make a decision on DI. So far in 2022, we're at 100%. In those cases, the commission found DI. In 2021, it was 90%. 100. So that's 100% of cases that that's 100% of cases that get to the commission review level had had found a DI. 100% of cases that came to the commission where they had to make a determination on DI. Right. Okay. So I mean, that's a pretty um, good rate for a complainant, right? 100. 100%. 90% last year, 100% in 2020, and 87% in 2019. I mean, these the odds are extremely high that if the case comes down to DI, that you're going to win. And a part of it may be, as you say, that the complainants put in, you know, you tend to, you have time to prepare your case, and uh, the, commit, the DI requirement is a known 
factor. And, you know, as a complainant, you should have time to put your case together. And I think that is part of why the numbers are so strong. And, you know, sometimes I've heard sort of a reverse concern that this idea that somehow the ITC is uh, deep sixing cases by using DI instead of reaching the merits, right? They don't like the complainant. The complainants feel insecure about how appealing they are to the commission. But the statistics actually show rather the opposite. In other words, if you look at the the cases on the merits, which the commission decided, say in 2020, it was one example, where they reached the merits and found no violation in 15 of those cases, there was, I think, 17 altogether. In 15 of those cases, the commission found no violation based on non-infringement, invalidity, other issues, and then didn't reach the, the domestic industry economic issue. So, in other words, it's, it's not that they're using econ DI to kill your infringement case. They may be using non-infringement is doing in your DI case, if you know what I'm saying. They're not even yeah, getting to yeah. the issue. They're, they're, so, if, um, if they think you're going to lose, they're going to find a different way to, to get there. Well, I, to I, I would put it almost less, de- I didn't mean to sound so deterministic. I mean, I think if your case has an infringement problem, you know, the commission is going to notice. But you're, you're not going to, you're complaining, just looking at the numbers here, there's no basis to fear the ITC because of the, that somehow there's a high chance that you're going to run into domestic industry economic prong problems. That, that's just not what's going on. I follow what you're saying. So, but if that's true, if that's true, it seems like in every case these days that I that I litigate at the ITC, a DI economic prong is a hotly contested issue by by respondents. But considering the numbers that we're talking about, why, why do you think? Why is that? The, why is it that way? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, and by the way, I think I'm glad we've started talking about economic prong because that's really what we've been talking about today. Technical prong of the domestic industry requirement course, is that you have to practice a claim of the patent, each of the patents you're asserting. And that's essentially an infringement showing. But what we've been discussing today is economic side, which is the uh, significance or substantiality of your economic activity in the U.S. But to your, to your question, why does this seem to be such a big issue? My, my experience, like, like you, I've seen this evolve over time into a much more contested issue. And having been on the respondent side in a lot over the years, I, I think there are two reasons. One is there are only so many areas where you can bring the case home, close to home to the complainant. You know, you, most of the discovery in, in these cases is about the respondents and the products, the infringement, to some extent, of course, invalidity. But you, if you want to go on the offensive as a respondent, one of the way, ways you can do it in a way that can be, take a lot of time and effort on the complainant side to respond to is domestic industry. It's a, a place that you can put some pressure and I think one thing that's come with that stri- isn't leading to worse outcomes, actually. It's just making the process more, a little bit more burdensome, is that increasingly both the complainants and the respondents are hiring expert witnesses to put in their domestic industry case. And that's something that you didn't see that much 10 years ago. You know, you put them in on, you know, there would be financial statements and things like this. It was, uh, and, maybe, and you'd have a corporate witness come up and talk about their financial statements at the evidentiary hearing, and that was all you did. And you did, it was sort of essentially done through lawyer presentations. But with the, you know, increasing use of expert witnesses, more and more complex arguments are made. The financial statements are parsed in ever finer slices. And ultimately, you know, this leads to more and more lawyering. And then 
the judges <laughs> are responding to all the arguments and the facts that, that are being presented to them, which makes the domestic industry section of their opinions bigger and bigger. And the whole thing just bloats. But you, when you go full circle, though, and you look at the commission's treatment of these issues, it's been remarkably consistent and concise over the years. So the bloat seems to end by the time you get to the commission. Yeah, I remember the first time I was involved in a case, which was early on in my career, uh, where there was a domestic industry expert. And I remember thinking at the time, why do we need this? Does this actually <laughs> help the commission? Wait, because, well, because an expert opinion is supposed to be assisting the ALJ and thereby the commission understand what things need to be, the things that need to be understood and to make a decision. And a lot of the times it's just, as you said, we're looking at financial statements, how complicated, I mean, it's not that those are necessarily the easiest thing to read, but if we're just talking about the magnitude of the numbers, why do I need an expert to, to explain that concept to the ALJ? As it turns out, and respondents have been very creative, I thought, of finding ways to make this question more complicated, whether that was, yes. hey, we need to, and when you're talking about a, a case of the ITC, which is an existential threat to, I think, everybody involved, respondents are going to do what they need to do. And they've gotten some really creative arguments that weren't frivolous, I, I think. I, a lot of these have been dealt with. But for example, we need to compare your your domestic investments with your foreign investments, if you have any, to make sure that your American investments are significant. Whether or not you consider the merits of that argument to be that argument to be meritorious or not, I could see an expert being needed for that. And then you, you get another argument, another argument, and it expands. And um, mm -hmm. I think the takeaway that I have is that even with all of those developments and really creative, really good lawyering on, on the side of the respondents, the outcome has still been that if you present your case, the commission is going to accept, is probably going to find you have a domestic industry if you've checked all your boxes and done your, and done your job correctly as a complainant. Right. I mean, if you have a case on the merits, it's going to penetrate. You know, and I, I completely agree with you. And actually, I think what you've described, which is this, you know, ever deepening how many angels can dance on the head of a, you know, cost center kind of stuff that you see from the experts, you know, the commission in its opinions is often swatting that kind of stuff down. And, and I think what was really going on in the, the, the respondent level is an effort, not so much to engage on the merits of what's really going on here, but to undermine the credibility or the reliability of the data. And so there's a lot of what I would, I mean, we're all guilty of it when we're in this role, but a lot of ankle biting. But what's interesting, and you see at the commission level, is that they see right through it. And um, you know, the, I th I'm thinking, I was thinking of the uh, 1097 case, which was a solid state drive case a few years ago, which was we represented the complainant on, and actually went through the hundred day process. And um, you know, it was a real, as you know, as you the ITC, you can have multiple respondents, so it was quite a gang up. And <laughs> the uh, Fundamentally, the ALJ even kind of went down some of these rabbit holes, as, as we saw it anyway, in terms of was it, you know, 25.2% or 25.4% and, you know, how many desks were actually occupied by the engineers compared with the HR department. I mean, that kind of stuff. And uh, the judge actually took some, you know, whittled, found DI at the, at the ID level, but, you know, whittled things down further and kind of going down this road of, you know, how many water coolers could actually be allocated to the engineering department. And um, the commission, in its opinion, just cleared the table. And so that's just ridiculous. You know, we really, we found the CEO credible. 
nobody sits around preparing, running their company in anticipation of ITC litigation. And if we look at the big picture here, you know, there's no question that these activities were significant and that they related to the products protected by the patent. And, you know, in fact, in that case, a lot like the Hyperice case here, actually, in a way, kind of widened the door again, cleared away some of the barnacles and said, let's you know, forget about what we're doing here. You know, you, you just made a comment that I feel like I have to say frequently, which is that nobody runs their business in, in anticipation of ITC litigation. This is sort of an aside from what we're talking about, but it's, it's really true that the books and records of the companies aren't kept in such a way that you can easily and nicely just port them over to what the ITC, in a way that the ITC wants to see it. So translating the, that information you just don't want to see that information lost in translation when you go from the way that it's kept in the normal course to the way that the ITC wants to see it and the categorization that they require to yes. show that you have a domestic industry. It's a very unnatural conversion of data. And I feel like some of the problems that we saw in the past was just trying to get from ordinary course to ITC language. Um, <laughs> and we, that's part of our job is to sort that out. Exactly. But you know, and the commission, by the way, is, a, is mindful of that. That's actually one of the takeaways I thought from the 1206 Hyperize cases. They were, I thought, fairly solicitous of this, you know, small, innovative American company. And um, they were trying to hold the door open for them as I read it and, you know, not stand on excessive formalism. But with the story, and I think, by the way, what was nice, I thought was very, you, one, of course, can only see the, some of the, couldn't see all the numbers so clearly, but you know, what was I thought effective about the hyperized presentation too, is it told this from the complainant was that they, they were able to relate the story of this company and why what it did mattered in a coherent way. And, and that's ultimately can be a casualty if one is too, if you start at the wrong end of the, the horse, so to speak, and, you know, make it a completely accounting based story without explaining why, how this company matters and why you know, what's the story there? You know, what is the fundamental narrative behind the complainant? And then uh, you I completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree. I, th I think there are some ITC practitioners out there that they've taken themselves out of district court and they say, I just need to, I just need to prove the actual facts on the ground in the ITC. But as lawyers, as litigators, I, the narrative to me is always important and making sure you tell that story is, is critical. Oh, exactly. So after hyperice, what do we see going forward? What's your take on, um, whether or not we're going to continue to see the trend that we've been seeing the last couple of years. Well, you know, my, my expectation would be, you know, again, just looking at the long arc of the way the commission's approached the, IT, the domestic industry issues that the commission will continue to be receptive to well-organized complaints with and complainants who are, you know, doing things in the United States or whose licensees are doing things in the United States, you know, creating innovations that they want for which patent protection is helpful. Right. And, uh, that the, you know, the commission has always been pretty good about, and you see this even with the way the statute has evolved about recognizing how the economy has has changed, and you know, you know, one of the things that we're seeing increasingly with the reshoring of a fair amount of, of some manufacturing to the U.S. though is that a lot of U.S. companies are rely significantly on global supply chains, so they're U.S. and foreign inputs into these products wherever they're assembled. And uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I mean, you're already seeing it quite a bit. So, you know, looking ahead, I want to, just looking at some recent developments, I would imagine we'll see more and more cases that bump into supply chain issues. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. We'll see where that all goes. 
the supply chain. But I, I just want to emphasize another something that you said a second ago, which goes back to Hyperice, which is that if you've got a great American story, a great story to tell about what you're doing in the United States, you should tell it. And the numbers are what the numbers are, the facts are what the facts are, and where you're making your product is where you're making the product. But like we saw in Hyperice, that product can be made somewhere else. As long as you're doing the things that the statute otherwise requires to be done in the United States, you can you can still get access and, and get relief, which I think to me is exactly. should be a relief to a lot of patent owners. Exactly. I mean, I think the commission recognizes this is an, an innovation-driven economy. You know, the uh, value added from in America is, is often, you know, novel designs and products. And that, you know, the apples of this world are a great example, right? We, they don't make their phones here, but it doesn't mean they're not an incredibly valuable and important American company that needs protection. And uh, the same goes for smaller companies, too. I think that's the last thing I just want to make. It's, you know, there's there's was a tendency to think of the ITC as playground only for the big boys. But if you look at the size of many, many successful complainants to the ITC, they're often much smaller, medium-sized companies facing pressure from knockoffs coming in from overseas, and they managed to make you know effective and efficient use of the commission. Well, I think that's a great point and a, and a great spot to end on. So, Jonathan. Thank you for your time today. It's been really informative and uh, I'll hope to talk to you soon. Uh, it was great talking with you. Thank you. Thank you.